name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and to my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Tomorrow is the memorial of Blessed Guadalupe Ortiz de Landazuri. Let us picture ourselves in sometime in January of 1944. We're in Madrid. A young woman by the name of Guadalupe Ortiz de Landazuri went to Mass at the Church of the Immaculate Conception in Madrid. She arrived late and uh, she slipped into one of the back benches at the back so as not to cause any disturbance. But probably there were some mm, one of the, some of those annoying ladies that turn around and look <laughs> at her they're wearing their veils at that time. Who is this that has just arrived? Guadalupe sat at the back. She was a practicing Catholic, but not especially devout. During the time of the homily, the priest gave out one parish notice after another, and Guadalupe's attention kind of wandered away it was hard to pay attention to the latest announcement about this meeting or that meeting. Probably he was not speaking about important things. Maybe, maybe they were important for some people, but probably not very transcendental. But her soul was suddenly attuned to a higher frequency. Most people there didn't pick up on the truths that she began to connect with, on the frequency that she was now connected with. And despite of her, her distractions, something happened to her at that point. She experienced an inner awareness of God. Well, an inner awareness of God being close to her. She said afterwards she felt the touch of God's grace. The touch of God's grace. God is close. He's not distant. This was the frequency that she connected with. It wasn't about some profound, uh, you know, transcendental truth that she connected with in that sense, but it's just God is here. She did not hear some strange voices. She just understood a truth about herself. And she understood that God wanted something from her. But she didn't know what. Just something. But what? Clearly it was not 
to help out and give a bit of her spare time. It was not something to do with going to volunteering in the parish. It was not about how she was going to spend her, her summer job. Probably not even about her career. She said she needed to speak to a priest. She didn't go to some friends. She needed to speak to a, a priest. For her, the, the priest was the person who could direct her in this, in this experience that she had that God wanted something of her. And well, the priest must be able to tell me what God wants of me. And through friends, someone suggested our father, St. Josemaria. So that meant that she didn't go directly to a priest. She went to somebody else. who, And she told somebody else. I should figure out who this was. But some person told her, I know a priest that you can go to. Go to, go to Father Jose Maria Escrivá de Balaguer y Albas. Oh, who is that? Who is that? I don't know who that person was, but I'd like to get to know that lady. I mean, I'm assuming it was a lady. That lady has now been forgotten. But she served a purpose. She served a purpose to bring two saints together. Both were dreamers and idealists. Neither of them was obsessive. But both were filled with these enthusiastic ideals about doing something with their life. Probably St. Josemaria too, our father, he had too, when he saw the work, it's as though he understood God wanted something. Something. So she heard from this friend, go and visit Father Jose Maria, Don Jose Maria. He lives on number 19, Jorge Manrique Street. So she called that place and the old phones of the time. And she went to meet him. We picture them meeting there in some salote, some little room, living room. And she said, Father, I think I have a vocation. But I don't know why. See, this something that she felt that God was asking her, for her, was to say or to articulate it as, I have a vocation. It's a generic expression. One, uh, it's a sort of one-fits-all expression that reflects that God was calling her to do something. She didn't say, God is calling me to do something. She said, God, she said, she said I have a vocation. And she went there with a sense of urgency. Perhaps for her, when she said, I have a vocation, perhaps that meant for her religious life. Because anybody, you would ask anybody at that time, they say, I have a vocation. A young lady like that, that meant Carmelite, visitation nun, uh, you name it. That's all there was for women. I think if she said, I think I have a vocation, I don't think she was thinking about marriage. Although a marriage is a vocation. But I don't think she was thinking about that. 
If it had been a man that had had that experience and he had said that, he would have been thinking almost certainly uh, priesthood. My father hears this. He takes it very calmly. It's calm. Inside he's going, oh yes, oh. But no, he's calm. He says, who knows, I have to get to know this, this lady. But he could see that, that something had lit up in her soul. It's like, you know, you can see somebody who's on drugs, you can see their pupils are dilated, you know, like, like so she was on drugs, you know. No, she wasn't on drugs, but she, he could see something had lit up in her. She was a chemist, and she loved to figure out why certain chemical reactions took place. If you mix this liquid with that chemical, you get a reaction. At times external, at other times the temperature changes, the viscosity of the liquid changes, the color changes, the inner property changes. It depends what you, how you mix stuff. In other words, she loved to discover the inner truth of things. Why does this change if you put that there? You have to know the, the, like the inner substance of each chemical matter that you're mixing together. And of course the most essential truth of all this is the truth about why and wherefore we are born, what is the purpose of my life. That's why she asked, I have a vocation. In other words, this was responding to the purpose of her life. In other words, something happened within her that was completely different from those chemical processes that she had studied and that she knew so well. In those, an initial substance changed into a different final product. You put a heat here and it melts. You put something else here and it crystallizes. So the external composition changes. Or the state is altered. But in her case, her life stayed the same, at least to all appearances, but she herself had been transformed inside. But externally she looked the same. And it's beautiful to read her letters to our father, St. Josemaria. And she really saw herself uh, in this passage that she read, well, this letter from St. Josemaria. So the, the day she met him was around 1944. But then she went back on a letter that he had written from about 12 years before, so from 1932. This is how St. Josemaria, our father, saw the vocation. Remember she said, I think I have a vocation. So this is what he said, and I think she saw herself in this. Uh, he said, if you ask me how one recognizes a divine calling, how one comes to a realization of it, I will tell you that it is a new vision of life. A new view of life, a new vision. I think the Spanish, una visión nueva de la vida. That's how he would have said it. Una visión nueva de la vida. He says, it's as if a light was lit within us. 
It's a mysterious impulse which urges us to devote our noblest energies to an activity which, with practice, begins to take on the nature of an occupation. That vital force, which is something like an avalanche sweeping everything before it, is what others call a vocation. That's what she felt. It's an avalanche. It's an avalanche. It sweeps everything. We know that after that encounter with Saint Rosmaria, she went with her mother to the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Extremadura. So that's more like, I don't know where, towards Portugal, let's say. And she put her vocation in Our Lady's hands. It's a, it's a fairly, I don't know, I think it's a pretty important shrine there in this medieval kingdom of Castilla. And uh, it's one of the three black Madonnas in Spain. I guess it would be Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Montserrat, and I guess Our Lady of Troisidas, unless there's another one that I don't know about. But the black Madonnas, they're ancient medieval images and uh, this Madonna of Our Lady of Guadalupe was crowned, was crowned, and I think it was like Pius XI or, some, or you know, like around 1925 or something like that. And the guy who designed that crown, the, like the thing that she was wearing, is Don Felix Granda, or Father Felix Granda, who founded this liturgical arts workshop, Talleres de Alte Granda, right? The, where we use the chasubles and the chalices and the, you know, tabernacles. And, um, and so there already, there's a, at least a tenuous connection with our father. Because he got to know this Felix Granda, Father Felix Granda, and somehow he... Uh, made a kind of deal with him that, that we would always use uh, or at least as far as possible at least in those years in Spain the, uh, that, that company to, to do our oratories or to you know, use the liturgical ornaments but in case, uh, thanks to the intercession of Our Lady Our Lady there of Guadalupe in Extremadura she saw her vocation and she gave herself generously over to this task. She did the administration of the centers, of the work, of the prelature, well, what later came to be the prelature. And we see in her letters that she wrote to St. Rosemaria this constant tone of happiness. She would tell our father about this joy that she felt. Like she, once she had given herself, she was really happy. Like she, there was a tone of happiness. But it was a humble cheerfulness like, like what she writes here in this letter, I'm not exactly the, sure of the date, but it's sometime in the 40s. She said, Father, I have been told that you prayed for me a lot on my name's day. I was so happy. I can really tell that people often think about of me. So she could tell that our father was praying for her. She could like feel the vibes, you know. She said, he's praying for me right now. He's praying for me right now, at this moment. Now I'm, now I'm working in the laundry 
and cleaning departments. I like that, the laundry and cleaning departments. It's like, a, as I've never done before, I get plenty of things badly wrong. And I'm so silly that quite often, knowing nothing about it, I say the first thing that occurs to me really dogmatically. I tend to do that without thinking. And then afterwards I realize that I've done what I've done and I try to put it right. So I can imagine her saying, you got to put bleach on there, you got to put starch on there, and that's the exact opposite of what you have to do, right? Destroy, you should just destroy the mantle or destroy this or that. Well, that's how you learn, by making mistakes. She said, for example, I have a great spirit of contradiction. And with my sometimes weird ideas, just for the sake of saying the opposite from someone else, I started up little arguments among us. How many ugly corners I have and I want so badly to get rid of them that when I see one, I think I won't do that again. And in less than a minute, I've fallen again. So she unveils her, her own weaknesses or her spirit of contradiction. She says, my sometimes weird ideas. Uh, you know, ideas raras. No, I don't know. But she speaks about it with such candor and such simplicity that one can only be but touched. And then later she was using a notebook for shopping lists and she realized that it had been used by her own father years before. And it had notes on it that touched her because as you know her father had been killed during the Civil War, he'd been shot, had been executed. She said, uh, read the text at Mass, they are, they are firing us, they are firing on us, this is what her father would have written, they are firing on us, many explosions early in the morning, got a letter from home, what a night and what days, went to confession, See, they, he's, just, he's just jotting down stuff, I read the text of the Mass, they're firing on us, explosions. I went to confession, you know. And then, since he was in the resistance, he was captured and he was shot. And her conclusion was, I owe my vocation to him, undoubtedly. It's beautiful to see how she kind of revered her own father, how she must have seen him in many ways as a hero. And yes, indeed, she owed it to him, but of course she was also free to correspond. Why does one person become a saint and another doesn't become a saint? What does it take to be a saint? What does it take to be a saint? I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas, his sister asked him, what does it take to be a saint? How did he become a saint? And he said, to want it, to want it. How much do I really want it? How much do I strive for it? How much am I really engaged in this as my purpose? 
I will be engaged in the degree that I hear his call. Like the first point of the catechism that says, God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, and to love him with all his strength. See, he calls him. That's what she, peer, that's what she perceived. I have a vocation. And that vocation was not necessarily the religious life. It was a vocation to love. It was a vocation to sanctity, to holiness. And it is the task of the Holy Spirit to do this, to realize this in us. Because we're not inert objects. He does not kind of smack us like, you know, over the head. Nor does he blow us up like tires that need air. In the Old Testament times, when a thing, like a piece of furniture that belonged to the tabernacle, to the temple, was sanctified, it was considered holy unto the Lord. So if you used uh, some kind of instrument that would be used in to the temple, it was holy unto the Lord, because it was used only for that. It could not be used for anything else. It was never to be used for any other purpose than for that which it is de dedicated for, to become holy. And in some sense it would become like the property of God, set aside for the service of God, according to His will. Now, in an inanimate object, like uh, where the will is not involved, it's very simple. So, like, you know, in the in Old Testament, there's like a little shovel, a little spoon thing that the priest uses to put incense into the thurible. It's a little spoon, tiny thing. Now, you could take any spoon, I suppose, right? But this spoon is made just for that, to scoop the ashes or scoop the incense. And so it was dedicated just for that. But for us to be dedicated, if we're like that scooping spoon thing, well, the Holy Spirit counts on our will, on the power of our response, on our yes to His polishing action. And we have to make it easier for Him. And the Holy Spirit... To, to wants to uproot and to set us aflame. And he can even set aflame our will, our tiny desires, our weak spiritual muscles, and give them vigor and strength. Lord, I don't have many desires now, but look at somebody like Don Alvaro. Look at somebody like Thérèse de Lisieux. Look at somebody like the children of Fatima or Monse or of course Guadalupe Ortiz de Landazuri. They were inflamed. They were inflamed by desires. And that's why the real purpose of our time of prayer here it's true when we go on an annual course, on a, on, a, on, a, on a retreat. The real purpose of all this is just to annihilate any traces of complacency in our life. 
in our work, in our family life, in our study. Complacency. Because complacency is the opposite of real desires. And there's certainly no complacency in Guadalupe Ortiz de Landazuri. Even if she admits to her errors and she made mistakes, there's always a total readiness in her. That's the, that's the basis of her sanctity. Like on March 17th, 1946, she wrote, Father, how happy it makes me to tell you, here I am. Here I am. Today, at the head of things, and tomorrow, in the last place of all. But always happy because I am serving our Lord. On September 21st of the following year, she wrote, I'm now in Suruburan and very happy as though I'd been here all my life. Right now we are surrounded by workmen and a fair amount of mess, but I think everything will be finished this week and the house will look very pleasant. Although I sometimes feel scared thinking about the beginning of term, I am calm and quite confident that everything will work out well. These past few days, with my head full of the house, cupboards, etc., I neglected my plan of life a little. Like I skipped the rosary and the reading some days. And I spent the time of prayer thinking about all the mess in the house. That's the equivalent of doing your prayer looking at your phone. Or looking at Facebook on the phone or something. But I'll try to make sure it won't happen again. So, okay, I'm not going to put the phone, I'm going to put the phone away. Pray hard for me not to get so caught up in the material side of my work, but carry on living with more love for God every day. Well, see, she said these things very simply, very humbly, without worrying too much about any of it. She was not stressed because she, she relied on God's strength, on God's love. So she was, of course, involved in many things. She gave classes, she did apostolate, she would call people. But we can ask ourselves, maybe I do a lot of things, I do a lot of stuff, I work, I do a lot of things, I do, I'm good here and good there, I don't swear, I, I pray, I live the plan of life. But it's possible that I've become a little bit complacent about what? About getting better, about really taking the initiative of canonizable sanctity. Have I become complacent? How do I remove the danger of complacency? Well, we have to reaffirm now the truth of our vocation, that we have been entrusted with this task. If we just understand the revolutionary nature of these words, and a lot of this rests on our initiatives, but above all, on God's grace. St. Osmeria used to say to the first members, you know, 
you know, the work is in your hands. It is indeed in our hands. But he did not, St. Osiris did not want automatons. He wanted active agent, agents that got things done. He wanted free agents, better sons and daughters of the Father, who know themselves to be sons and daughters of God. Well, let us uh, ask uh, Blessed Guadalupe for that saint, that same uh, divine sense of humor. Because uh, without a sense of humor, we won't uh, really advance. She will intercede for us and grant us that joy of living out that pathway of sanctity and absolutely destroying any sense of complacency. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.